0: This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories for Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. It's Friday, June 10th, and I'm sitting down with Monique Combs in Brunswick, Maine. Welcome to Maine Coast Doc Talk. Uh, Today we've got an awesome interview with Nick Batista, who is from the Island Institute. And Nick and I sat down and chatted about marine spatial planning. There was a big new document that was released last week talking about a multi-year program and process that they just went through to develop this plan-to-plan, uh, plan, I guess. It's it's really interesting to kind of dig into, and you can listen to the, the interview uh, and kind of figure out what's going on there. It's it's basically what they call it is is like... Uh, zoning for the oceans and obviously working with commercial fishermen that can have some impacts so interesting interview uh you know that's going to be after uh in a couple minutes but first monique how are you doing today
1: i'm doing well ben how are you
0: doing really well uh and monique what do you got for some news today
1: uh there was an article a few days ago ben um, from the bangor daily news called if you knew that fish was from maine would you pay more and basically, the reporter discusses um, a report done by Humane Sea Grant. Um, they interviewed people about, you know, what, if they would pay for more for local fish, the difference between sustainability and locally harvested. And it was all very interesting. But the thing I take away from it the most is um, it's sort of, I don't want to say disheartening, but it's, it's funny how we ask people if they would pay more for local fish um, when really they're not, I mean, they are paying a little bit more, but they're, they're actually paying a fair price. And what they're doing is paying not enough for, for other fish, cheap fish. I'm sure you've heard the expression, um, good food ain't cheap and cheap food ain't good.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't adhere to that. I just go to McDonald's. Yeah. You
1: eat a lot of McD's. Yeah. You know, obviously you do you Ben, yep. but you know, so you're paying a cheap price for shrimp from Thailand at the grocery store. Um, that has proven accounts of slavery uh, along the supply chain and processing and harvesting, which I'm sure many of you have seen. Um, and in Maine, we have, um, you know, by definition, f- seafood that's been landed landed in the United States is sustainable because of the way our fisheries are regulated. Especially if you're getting fish here in Maine, um, so really you're not you're not paying more; you're paying a fair price. So I wish. You know, I wish there was a way we could start to communicate that it, it's not an extravagance. You're paying what the fishermen deserve, what the supply chain deserves.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's uh, something that even in the United States, though, we still have our problems, and, and some of those problems become come from outside pressure. So there was also another recent bust that took place out of New Bedford, where some of the fish processors who
1: it's true you know go through yeah. and
0: and process ground fish uh, from New England, they were employing illegal immigrants they were employing undocumented uh, workers paying them really low wages there was some coercion there was other things that were going on there and partially you know i I don't know the people who run those shops but i'm sure that part of the pressure is because of what the marketplace is and who they have to compete with right now when it comes to price and so it's all about getting the price lower Um, and so you know while the seafood that we're always tell people to buy from new england is sustainable there are sometimes issues that come up in the supply chain as well when you start looking at cost cutting which is scary
1: yeah that's definitely true and you know why you were saying that too i was thinking i think i believe i've heard that shrimp um regardless of where it from is one of the most purchased seafood products in grocery stores it which is, is yeah. interesting because you know here this study says that 70 75 of respondents said they would pay more for fish if they knew it was harvested sustainably and locally and yet people aren't actually following through with that if shrimp is you know if they know where it's coming from and they know you know the price and that it's not sustainably harvested it's not from Maine and that's what they're still choosing to purchase are they saying something different than what their actions are actually showing which is that price is still one of the number one issues that people look at when they're purchasing seafood products
0: well and so this that actually this is going to look look like we planned it, but we don't plan anything. So <laughs> no, this, this, we don't plan anything. <laughs> this is a great transition into. So the article that I uh, wanted to talk about was about Maine shrimp and the Maine ah, shrimp fishery, right? Yeah. And so I I actually would argue a little bit against you in your assertion that people aren't willing. I know. I'm sorry, but that people aren't willing to pay for for certain things sometimes because uh, agreed. We have I know seen where you're going. that we built this Maine shrimp market years ago. You know that. There was a huge demand for local Maine shrimp, and partially it was because people love shrimp, and then they knew where it was coming from. And you know, this past year, because there was only a handful of trips that were taken, uh, and they were all surveys, scientific tests, uh, the shrimp was was getting insane price per pound back to the it boat for those was. that were able to do it. And partially it was because of the rarity, but also because people hear the horrible things about other shrimp fisheries and. They wanted, they wanted to eat shrimp. They wanted to buy local, and that was as local as they could get.
1: Yeah. I agree. You know, and that brings up, to something that I've read recently about, like, marketing to millennials, and that exclusivity is, like, a huge thing. And so having a big demand for shrimp like that and only being able to get it in certain places, people are definitely willing to pay for it. So how do we do that for all of our products?
0: Yeah, well, we aren't landing a lot of fish in Maine <laughs> anymore, so it's pretty exclusive. Come on,
1: everybody. It's exclusive. <laughs> yeah, very
0: exclusive from Maine. Very rare. Um, So, but to dig into the the rest of the article that I was going to talk about tonight or today for shrimp is, so the shrimp fishery in Maine has been shut down for the past four years now, three or four years. Three or four years, Um, years, yeah. And it's because the the stock collapsed. And we had several years in a row where things were great, but because of some overharvesting, because of ocean temperatures getting... Um, you know, pushing the shrimp to to some extreme temperatures that they aren't ready for, um, we saw that fishery collapse. And now the regulators are sitting down to talk about, well, if the shrimp come back, how do we regulate them better? And uh, you know, I think that this is a great thing for them to be talking about, and we are going to be engaged in, in working with them on that. But there's a little piece of me that is, you know, there's this great saying of people who are trying to do something on a on a project that's failing it's like you're out there and you're rearranging the, the chairs on the deck of the titanic right it's going down what does it matter but at this point we're, we're kind of like are using that little the, the little undersea robot to move the chairs around at this point what is that argo remember I, that no no like the guy who put the never mind who's argo the 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 robot that the the person who found the titanic uh. sent down to the bottom of the ocean
1: Oh, I didn't know it See, had a name. See, the
0: reference is now the, shrink, the, the yeah, shrimp I, has already it. disappeared, right? We've and now we're, Okay, we All get right, it? Yeah, we're there?
1: Didn't know the robot had a name. Oh,
0: it had a name. <laughs> it comes from Greek mythology. Anyways, um, <sighs> but they are talking about changing management to try and stop this type of thing from happening if management was a piece of the problem. And that's where you kind of come into this, well, we've got science, we've got changing oceans, we've got the fishermen as a piece of this. It's so complicated and it's, it's really one of those places where we needed to be proactive and now we're being reactive. And Is it too little, too late, or are we just planning for the hopeful future that we can bring it back and, and there's something, something there for us?
1: I vote hopeful.
0: I, I always vote hopeful and I love Maine shrimp, so I'm really hopeful about that one. Yeah. But um, that's something that, that we will be paying attention to. It as, would help as a lot of fishermen forward. too. Yeah, and right now there's a number of people who are talking that we might have a little fishery next year. So good. that would be uh, that'd be great. See how that goes. Uh, so uh, I think that's good for uh, today on local news. Uh, we're going to be going into my interview with Nick, and uh, then we'll come back with Monique and I to touch base on that interview. Nick, thank you for joining us for the main coast doc talk. Uh, I'm here with Nick Batista who is the Marine program director for the Island Institute. And he's here to talk to us about the Marine, no Marine spatial planning and the Northeast regional ocean plan. You got it. Perfect. Uh, and so Nick, what is it? What are we talking about?
2: The Northeast regional ocean plan is, uh, 200-page document that just came out last week in a draft form that fundamentally changes how federal agencies relate to state agencies and people who make their living off the water um, when they're making decisions about different ocean uses, permitting processes. And,
0: and so just to get this uh, on the table right away. So it is a draft. That means that people can comment on it. There's a process um, along with this podcast. We'll put some stuff on our blog so that people can get access if they want to go read the document if they want to comment on it all that good stuff is going to be there um it's a it's a big document and uh i i skimmed through it quickly it's beautifully written but uh there's a lot there so uh just as a heads up it's going to be on our blog but nick let's uh learn a little bit more about who you are why am i talking to you about this and why does the island institute care
2: well you're talking to me because i'm here Yes, talking to you that is this. great. Yeah, but
0: you showed up when I called.
2: You know, we, we like to do that. Uh, more importantly, the, the regional ocean plan, the, the draft plan, um, is that change in relationship between federal agencies and states. And it is a. Yeah, yeah. you want to start over? Yeah. We'll
0: okay, just. so we're going to start over from the end of that question. So just mm-hmm. dig into it again. So what was
2: the question? Yeah. no.
0: <laughs> so Nick, this is a big document. It's a lot of important things in it. Why am I sitting here talking to you about this document? What do you care about it? What do you know about it? What's the IL Institute's involvement in this process?
2: So it's a big document. It's an important document. And I think we're why, why we're involved? Why we're, why you're talking to me? Um, why the Island Institute cares? In 2014, the lobster fishery was the single most valuable species landed in the United States. Um, it's the economic backbone of many of our coastal communities, and without the lobster fishery, a lot of our island communities would disappear. I know that um, for the groundfish fleet, it's a little bit smaller in Maine than the lobster fleet, but. Um, it's very important to the communities that have ground fish boats in them. And as we start talking about other ocean uses coming into the Gulf of Maine or expanding, um, things like offshore wind or sand and gravel mining or um, some dredge disposal activities or a whole bunch of other activities that maybe we don't even know about yet. Um, as those activities are coming in, federal agencies are making decisions about where they go and how they go, how they're constructed, how they're built, how they're operated, how they're permitted. And right now those decisions are made without a lot of input from fishermen, fishing communities, without a lot of input from the people who are impacted by those decisions. Mm -hmm. And if we start thinking about an offshore wind farm or other large ocean uses, you might end up placing something somewhere that really takes away the ability of a number of people in a community to make a living because that's where they fish in March, that's where they fish in October and they don't have anywhere else they can go because the fish aren't there or um, there are other people fishing there. Um, and so without knowing that information, it's really easy to plunk something down in the ocean. Uh,
0: so that's a, a great synopsis of why we're going through this process in terms of the, the benefits and some of the costs that might come out of the, the current users, those that have communities that are based upon uh, the, the Gulf of Maine or other oceans um, that this encompasses, Georgia's Bank, a lot of the North Atlantic. But why are we going through this? How did this process start? Mm. It's been several years since it got kicked off. This is a huge 200-page document. They put a lot of time and effort into it. Uh, you know, this came out of an, an Obama administration executive order. What, what, walk me through that. How did we get here?
2: So we got here because for the last 30 years or so, we've been making decisions about our oceans um, and the uses that are going on in them in a less than well-coordinated fashion. And so um, in the coastal management circles starting decades ago, um, it was recognized that individual agencies making decisions without talking to other agencies or talking to states was not a great way to manage our So,
0: so in short, we basically have, we got the fisheries people making decisions, we've got the wind people making decisions, we've got oil and gas people making decisions, and they're not always talking or coordinating or figuring each other's out
2: right and so in 2004 2005 um, there were two ocean commissions one of them was uh, appointed by president bush and the major recommendation from the u.s commission on ocean policy was to do something like marine spatial planning to improve the coordinated governance of our ocean environment and so the obama administration issued an executive order in 2010 to start implementing Coastal and Marine Spatial Planning in the U.S. um, at the regional scale, and the regional planning body is the entity that's been established to do this coordinated governance for New England, and there are nine federal agencies. There are um, 10 representatives from the states. Each state in New England has two representatives, Um, and there are six federal tribes who have signed on to the regional planning body. Those are the people who are sitting at the table who directed the document to be written. Um, they're the people who are, the federal agencies are the ones who are going to be looking at the data and using it in their decision-making processes. The states and the tribes may also use the data, they may use the plan as well in, in other ways. Um, a lot of that might be to keep the feds honest and, and make sure that they're following the plan and make sure they're.
0: And so you, you mentioned data a couple of times and I know that there was a data collection process that went along with this ocean planning process. I, I'm more interested, and in, I want to talk about the data, because that's actually one of the places that mm-hmm. I, you know, I know that we, our fishermen have been involved with, um, I'm more engaged with, but the, the actual document itself and what it does is still something that I'm trying to wrap my head around is, so we've got a document that's a plan that encompasses a lot of different industries and encompasses a lot of different management bodies Is it a binding plan is it a suggested plan what is it what kind of weight does it actually carry in any decision-making process
2: the document itself doesn't carry a huge amount of weight it has a lot of information a lot of it is contextual information about what we're doing here in new england and what's important to our coastal communities and how our various coastal industries start to function um What is binding in the document are commitments that federal agencies have made to um, use the data, to keep the data updated, and to um, work better with coastal stakeholders in their decision-making processes. What all of that means is described in the document in a lot of respects, but there's a whole bunch of things that are still question marks around how do the federal agencies actually identify which stakeholders to be talking to? This is the first draft. This is the first in probably a a long process of trying to figure out how to do this work better. And so right now it's a framework and it um, gives us a good direction to say, here's how to have these conversations. Here are the conversations that federal agencies need to have as they're going about permitting a process. Um, permitting a project but we we don't know what those conversations look like so i can't sit here and tell you that the plan means that the fishermen who fish out of Cundy's harbor will be able to be involved in every process that's making a decision about flats it's a place where they fish they're they're out there what the plan does do though is give them and, and you the ability to stand up to federal agencies and say this area is important and we have a regional plan that says We should recognize the importance of our fisheries and our fishing communities and that's culturally important to us it's important to our coastal economy and um, we want to be involved in the decision making processes about that
0: area so we just went through a four-year process to develop a process right yes is that okay uh, and that's and that's fine. I'm I'm a I'm a believer in putting in the time and energy to to actually make sure that you accomplish your goals into the future. Um, I guess my my question for you, as somebody that has only skimmed through this document, is: Did the process of creating this, of gathering the data, uh, did it do its job? Did we get something that we can feel comfortable with, or? As a fishing industry, as coastal communities, should we be really focusing in on this document as something that we have to be putting some comments in and and trying to push back or engage with a little bit heavier?
2: I think it is um, a little bit of both. There's a lot of really good language in the document about the importance of coastal communities and recognizing that connection between ocean space and coastal economies. On the other hand the document is fundamentally about data around what is happening where and then how that data is used and a set of best practices for engaging with stakeholders in various permitting processes and the details of those are places where i think there's an incredible opportunity for groups like the Maine coast fishermen's association to weigh in and to share how fisheries in, in maine should be engaged in some of these conversations you probably Um, And and the guys you work with have a different relationship to ocean space than folks down in Massachusetts do. um, Or folks in Rhode Island. And you use ocean space differently. You have different concerns. If somebody said something will be happening here during this time, it might be okay. It might not be a time when you fish there. But until we sit down and have that conversation, you're not on the table. You're not recognized as a a stakeholder. In a lot of ways, it's the, the folks... The plan is not written for you or for me. The plan is written for people who are working in federal agencies and making mm. management, regulatory decisions, permitting decisions, um, who have never been to New England, who don't know what our coastal communities are like. And um, maybe they're they're from the Midwest and they've never been to the ocean. It, it, it could be it's written for somebody who doesn't know anything about what's important to us or how we work or how we operate.
0: And that's actually, I think that's actually a really good thing to recognize in reading and looking at this document because I was, I was shocked at the amount of words in it. It is, it is a very dense document, but there's also a lot of beautiful pictures that I was surprised to see as I was going through it. It was like, wow, they're basically almost selling a product as well. Like it, it's, it's, You know, it's kind of a beautifully written and and beautifully organized document. Um, And so understanding a little bit better about, well, who the intended audience is, I think makes sense, Um, because one of my major concerns with this is, like, I'm never going to be able to get a fisherman or a person who's just a community member to really engage in the document. And so the hope, then, I guess, is to get them to engage in the process Um, at some point, And to come to you with that is that many times in the fisheries world, in the regulatory world, what we do is we react Mm -hmm. to a threat. Is this, do you think this process is going to actually foster more planning as opposed to reactions, which is the way that, you know, usually if something gets put on the table, we don't like it, we throw stones at it and hope that it goes away. Are we changing that? Is that going to be where we end up with
2: this? it starts to change that yeah it doesn't get all the way there that's a big a big ask of a document um in thinking about how federal agencies do business they're not known for being nimble they're not known for moving quickly unless you don't want them to move quickly and then they can move amazingly fast but um in changing federal agency action you're talking about changing the the culture and The data that's used to make these decisions, the information that goes into the decisions, the decision-making processes themselves, Um, and so you're still going to be throwing stones at projects that you don't like. That is still going to be happening. The plan isn't going to fix all of that. What it might do, though, is um, help convince a developer or somebody who wants a project to move forward to say there might be an issue here with fisheries. And so let's talk about it earlier in the process when maybe you could influence it, maybe you could still do something about it. Maybe the project is proposed and it's near or it's on an important toe, but if you moved it a quarter of a mile, it wouldn't be in that important toe. And so at some stage in the process, you can have those conversations and maybe the developer would respect that and and move their project, to avoid some of the negative interactions, to avoid some of the stones. And so the document is really about identifying those places where there might be conflict between uses, um, using the data in the data portal and using the information in the plan, and then helping people figure out what to do with that. And so it's structured at federal agencies right now, but I think going forward there will be more push to have developers use the plan. In fact, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in the plan committed to updating some of their guidance documents to direct developers to go and read the plan and look through the data portal and look at the information about what we know for their site before they apply. So in the pre-application process, they would use this information and they might see, oh, hey, there's some groundfish activity happening there or somebody's going monk fishing there. What does that mean? We should go talk to them. And how do we do that? That remains to be seen, but that's at least how the plan hopefully could make that interaction a little bit better.
0: So let's, um, I just want to quickly put out on the table what, you know, we we touched on it briefly, but we have the current uses out in the ocean, which is a lot of the fishing, there's shipping, um, there's recreation, uh, whale watch, like all Mm -hmm. kinds of that kind of stuff. And now we have these new and emerging uses. Um, Some of that might be drilling or oil or gas. Uh, We've got wind Uh, We've got, you know, uh, tidal energy in some place. Like we've got these new and emergent things, mining that like we never would have thought of that might someday be worthwhile. So is this a process that potentially makes it easier for these new things to get cited and put out there? Uh, I know that that's been one of the concerns all along from the fishing community, from the current users, right? It's like, so is this a process that's gonna be making it easier for somebody else to come in and take something that we've been
2: using for generations? Um, What are your thoughts? It's a process that makes it clearer. Mm. And so maybe that clarity makes it easier. It also gives you a voice at the table in a way that you haven't had before. And so which way does that cut? Does it make it easier to, to permit a project? Probably. But does it mean that it happens with better input from impacted stakeholders? That's also part of it. And so maybe that means projects don't happen, or they, they don't get as far into the permitting process before there's a realization that there's an incompatible conflict. And it may mm-hmm. not just be with fishing, it may be with um, whales or migratory birds or other um, quote-unquote uses of the ocean sure. um, that are also important and also regulated. And, and the important thing to remember is this all, the whole plan is done under existing regulatory authority existing statutory authority and so the what can be permitted now doesn't change with the plan right it's just about how that data is used how that information is used how people are are interacted with
0: so that's the the really boring part of this discussion is this plan about planning um and we'll have a blog post that Allows people to go and find a link to the plan. has some links to where you go to comment on it. What's the the date for comments? Do you know that off the top of your head? It is July 25th. July 25th. So we have a a little bit of time to to get in comments and look at it. And so if you have some concerns about anything that we're talking about, check that out. What is actually more interesting, though, is the data collection process that you went through. And a lot of other people did as well. But I know that you at the Island Institute, you sat down with a lot of different fishermen, a lot of different ocean users to talk about where they're doing things, how they're doing things, and um, have created a a really fantastic program that looks at that. Um, So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that process with you, and what are some of the things that we think we can learn and take away from starting to actually map and talk about ocean use?
2: I think the the biggest single thing to take away from all of the mapping work that's been done with, with fishermen and fisheries groups is that we may know where fishing activity happened this year or last year or the year before. And maybe we can guess about where it'll happen next year, but we really don't know. And that level of uncertainty about where fishing activity will happen in the future, whether it's people responding to environmental shifts or regulatory shifts or just changes in their, in their markets or their business practices, um, that ability or, or that uncertainty about where activity takes place in the future was a major concern from uh, members of the fishing community as we were going out and looking at the various fisheries data that's that's in the plan. Um, And the plan heard that. And that's in the plan in multiple places that federal agencies need to be aware of. And for me, as somebody who works a lot with island and remote coastal communities who often don't have a voice in some of these federal decision-making processes, it's huge to have a formal document coming out that gives voice that says phishing is an uncertain business and we don't know where it will happen in the future. And now that's not in the data itself. There are a whole bunch of very interesting maps in in the plan, but underlying all of those maps is a set of metadata and caveats that tell you that what you can and can't interpret from, from that data. And those caveats are things that We would expect federal agencies to read as they're using the data or developers as they're using the data um, to read and understand and they provide an opportunity to follow up on it in terms of the data specifically um, federal fisheries there's a couple of federal fisheries in the plan um, that are incorporated using the vessel monitoring system data so each one of your guys has a little pinger on their boat that goes up and every hour it it sends a, a little signal up to a satellite that says, here I am. And they switch it on and they have uh, different codes that they put in for doing different activities. And so we took some of those codes and we took um, the pings from 2006 to last year and they're in the data portal. And so you, they're sorted by Different fisheries, so the groundfish fishery, the multi-species and fishery. so, is this
0: is this for everybody, or is this only for certain people? Like, who? What kind of data did you actually were you able to pull in for this type of process?
2: It was every ping from every boat since two thousand six. That's a lot of pings. It's a lot of pings. Um, that's not the data that is shown in the data portal. Mm-hmm. That's the data that underlies that. So, what's shown in the data portal are um, heat maps that show the density of pings, the relative density. So the, the
0: places where you had the most pings that would potentially correlate with some of the most important areas for people to be fishing or traversing or whatnot um, that go into that.
2: Yes. So they they would, it might not be the most important areas. It would be the busiest areas or the areas mm. with the most number of pings. I I think that's one of the, Difficulties with this kind of data is that the Data doesn't tell you what is the most important area It just says that there are more pings here relative to this other spot Um, It doesn't tell you that This other spot over here that looks like it's not very well fished at all is actually where everybody from Port Clyde fishes and if you did something there it might not hurt the regional Picture of the fishery because it it is relatively um, Less density of lower density of pings than off of say Gloucester but if you did something here you would completely wipe out a coastal community
0: that's that's really interesting and and that's where you know making sure that people are paying attention to that metadata or the the underlying discussion and just to kind of fall back on on the next iteration of that that you kind of touched on briefly is things are changing in fisheries Mm -hmm. right and with global warming, climate change, all these other things, things are changing more rapidly. And so there's certain places like in down east Maine that hasn't had a ground fish trip in 25, 30 years. They're doing all this fantastic work to, you know, we, we did an interview with Ann Hayden who's mm-hmm. doing the Down East Fisheries Partnership where they're opening up dams and trying to bring back river herring to bring back those groundfish populations. And so, how much do you think that this data is going to be continued to be updated? So that if they do succeed in rebuilding a fishery down there uh, in down East Maine, uh, that you know that can be reflected. Is, is it going to be a, adaptive and, and continue to be having a, a data portal that collects new information? It should be. Mm.
2: And so, right now, what's in the plan are. Commitments from federal agencies that control the various data sets that are used in the plan to update them regularly, and so uh, National Marine Fisheries Service has agreed to update the VMS data annually. Um, so next year, at some point, we'll we'll see 2015 um, data going into the portal. We'll see 2016 data going into the portal. 2017 data. Um, Part of what the, the plan did was pull existing data sets together. So instead of going out and creating a whole bunch of new data, it was more about pulling existing data together and displaying it in maybe slightly different ways, which means the underlying data sets are things federal agencies are already collecting. And that's important because it's not going to get updated if it relies on having to go collect new data to, to update it.
0: Right, because I mean you and and others within the Allen Institute and other organizations went and had individual sit downs with fishermen and whatnot. So this is more along the lines of there's data streams that already exist. How do we tap into those current streams to populate maps and, and whatnot?
2: And the the conversations with the fishermen are what informed how the data is displayed in the portal and most importantly the caveats that go yep. along with it. And as, um, as far as I can recollect, I I think it was the conversations with the fishing community that really led to the idea that we need to have caveats with all of this data that's in the portal. And so um, I think fisheries were the first place where we ran into data that was um, squishy enough or, or cause enough for concern about misrepresentation or misuse that putting in those caveats so they're available. If somebody misuses the data, you can look at the caveats and call them on it. It doesn't have to be a federal agency doing it. It could be um, you can police the federal agencies or the developers or other people using the data. And so now the, the data
0: stream, the data portal um, is public. It's right? public. Anybody can go there and take a look at these heat maps and whatnot. They can't get the underlying data or they can request that. What is the, what, what does that look like?
2: They can't get the underlying data. a lot of that's confidential business information. Um, wouldn't want to necessarily say, This is where the the best fishing grounds are. This is where this particular person is fishing. Um, But there's a lot of data in there. And I think one of the, beyond the fisheries data, which is very interesting to me, I think the shipping data is incredibly interesting for people who wanna do something off the coast of Maine or are curious about who's using the water out there. Um, Once you get out past the coastal zone, fishing and, and the shipping industry are two huge uses of the ocean, and the shipping industry data is broken down by um, tug and barge, tanker, cargo vessel, uh, passenger vessel, and they use different routes, and they're in the water in different places, and it's just, it's fascinating to look at. I I like regional governance, coastal management issues, and I like data, so that's, probably makes me kind of a, a nerd,
0: but. Yeah, no, it definitely makes you a nerd, uh, but, but you're, that does you're here talking to me too, so. I am, I am, and I'm not yawning, so. Um, <laughs> So on that point and looking ahead, I believe, and I, I may have this wrong, but I believe this fall, uh, summer or fall, there's actually a conference in uh, Portland around the Arctic mm-hmm. and talking about like Arctic trade and transit. And it, it does seem like Maine is becoming more and more of a hub for barges and transit mm-hmm. and shipping. Um So how do those type of things, how were they kind of discussed in the document in terms of not only, hey, here's the process, but here's how we plan for the future as well. Because it's a plan, right? This is the the, the ocean planning document. It's developing a process. But do they also talk about any hopes or aspirations for where we want to be going with our coastal economy in areas? Or did it really leave all of that off the table and just focus on process?
2: It started with a very good baseline characterization of here's where we are, mm-hmm. and within that there are some indications of where various sectors are going. So aquaculture, there are there's a little bit in there about the expansion of aquaculture offshore. There's been an offshore muscle lease off of um, proposed off of Gloucester, mm. so um, things like that. It it doesn't get to the aspirational here's where we want our fisheries to be in 10 years. Here's where we want our, or here's what we think is coming for um, short sea shipping or other um, coastal trade. But it allows us to start having those conversations. It allows us to ask those questions in a meaningful way and in a, either a regulatory context or outside of a regular con- regulatory context, but with a clear connection back to it. And so those are questions that if you'd, if you'd ask those questions in, some permitting process, you would know, have kind of looked at it like a crazy person. Right. Um, and now I this normally a, am anyways. But and now this at least gives you the ability to say, look, it's in the plan, and, and here's what it is, and we have these changes coming, so how are we accounting for those? Very cool. So I think
0: that has you know, gotten me up to speed in where we are and where this document is and why I need to pay attention to it a little bit more. Uh, Is there any final thoughts or uh, notes that you want to share with us with any, you know, takeaways from the document that you Mm -hmm. you dug into um, or anything else, you know, lasting thoughts that we need to be taking away?
2: I think the, the biggest thought for the ocean plan is the plans about data around what's happening where, best practices for engaging stakeholders and states and impacted communities. Um, And the true power of the plan comes both from the commitments federal agencies are making to use that data and information and also in our collective ability to look at that data and look at that information and Use it to help federal agencies better understand What we're doing here in Maine Um, and so that's I think it's as much Federal agencies are using the the data in the plan. Um, I think there's as much value for us to be using it in, in our conversations, and not only in conversations about ocean planning, but in conversations about the future of our coastal economy or our future of coastal uses or interactions between different uses.
0: Well, Nick, thanks for sitting down and chatting with us about the, the marine ocean planning process and uh, where we are with this new draft document. It was really interesting, and uh, I'm, I'm happy you made the trek down to Brunswick to talk with us about it. Thank you for having me. And we're back. So, Monique, we just listened to Nick and I talk at length about marine spatial planning and this process that has been very uh, – it's been a long process. It was a convoluted process. Um, did you get it? What do you think of, of what Nick and I were talking about?
1: Uh, I think it was complicated, Ben. Um, or at least I think it's complicated. Uh, there's a couple of things I'm not clear on, but I think my, my biggest question for you – uh, would be why should or would fishing communities and fishermen be supportive of this kind of process? Yeah, and that was
0: something that we, we struggled with as an organization that works with commercial fishermen in that you know there's lots of people from this process who were coming to us and saying, we want you involved, we want your fishermen involved, how do they get here? But from a fisherman's perspective, you know, this is th- the ocean that they've been fishing on for their entire lives, for several generations, you know, some of the fishermen we work with are 10th generation fishermen, right? And so anytime you start talking about shared use, it's perceived as a loss, right? And, and it, I think that that's, that's just the big point of, you know, we've got these fishermen and other fishing entities that say, anything that else comes out and is put on the ocean is a loss for us. And uh, so why would we get involved? That's a difficult spot to be in. But my argument is, you know, that we need to be paying attention to this because things have changed so so dramatically over the past twenty years. We used to have, you know, over close to like two hundred boats fishing for groundfish in the state of Maine, right? And now we have thirty. So if you were to look at these maps that Nick talked about creating and where people are fishing currently and you were to put those maps up on a on a board and say, Where can we put a windmill or where can we do some offshore drilling it's like, oh, well, this is a huge area that nobody's fishing in anymore. It's like, well, maybe that was fished in 20 years ago. And we as fishermen and fishing communities need to make sure that the history is also a part of this discussion because while it's history, we're hopeful that that's also the future and that those fishing grounds can, can come back and be an important part of, of our fishing future. So I think that's really my my big push for why we need to be involved and in paying attention to it at least is... If we see things we don't like the way things look right now and we want things to look the way that they used to when it comes to the marine ecosystem, we need to be planning for that. And if we aren't involved in the planning process, it's gonna pass us by. So that's that's really my big, big push on that. That makes sense?
1: Makes sense. Makes total sense, Ben.
0: Great. Well, I think that's good for us today. Thanks for joining us for Main Coast Doc Talk. Uh, Monique, thanks for sitting down. Thanks, Ben. And, uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks. I don't know what our next interview is going to be on, but we're, uh, I think we're going to be trying to find a fisherman to talk to, um, maybe tuna. I'm thinking tuna would be kind of fun. Oh, I think tuna would be a
1: great idea.
0: So we'll, we'll be back. Uh, thanks for joining us. Maine Coast Doc Talk is a production of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. This episode was produced by myself and Emily Tucker.